Our scripture passage this morning is from Romans 3, 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevailed when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips their lip, to shed blood. There is no it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Thanks, Grace. Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Romans, and we've been here for the last couple months, and this morning we come to Romans chapter 3, going to be looking at verses 1 through 20 here this morning. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you, you know that the, kind of the big issue or the big problem that Paul is writing this letter to address in the church at Rome is that of pride. Now, I know for some of you, you hear that, you're like, man, that's, that's some really heavy theology for like a, 11 chapters just to just to write, to, to deal with the issue of, of pride, but that's, that's exactly what Paul is doing here, that Paul is writing this letter to address this issue of, of arrogance, this issue of, of feelings of superiority that the Jews and Gentile Christians felt within the church at Rome. And so then as we've talked about, the, the Jews felt like they were superior to the Gentiles because they were God's chosen people, and the Gentiles felt like they were superior to the Jews because they felt like God was done with the Jews. And because of that then, as you can imagine, it led to all this tension, all this division, just within, and all, the, all this mess within the life of the, of the church. And as we talked about over the last few weeks, this isn't just an issue 2,000 years ago when it comes to the Jew and Gentile relationship within the church at Rome. Instead, this is a potential danger, and this is a potential temptation and issue for Christians and for churches today, including, including ours. And so I, I know most of us, like in this room, are, are Gentiles, so we don't have the same sort of Jew, Gentile, who's better than who, who's superior to who kind of issue going around. 
But that same temptation, that same impulse, it's still in all of our hearts. That it's easy to to begin to be puffed up, to be filled with pride and arrogance, feeling like you're better than someone else. And so I know most of us, we're probably not going to say this out loud, or I hope we're not going to say this out loud, but it's easy potentially to be able to walk in here and think, I'm more important than you because I'm like a, a discipleship community leader. Or I'm more important than you. I'm, I'm superior to you. I'm better than you because I hold to this theology. I'm better than you. I'm, I'm, I'm more important than you because I've been overseas five times. Like I'm better than you. I'm superior to you because like I, I know more of the Bible. I've got more of the Bible memorized than you. I'm better than you. I'm superior to you because I'm married. I'm better than you, I'm superior to you because of my skin color. I'm better than you, I'm superior to you because of, have you seen my bank account? I don't don't know how many of us would say that, but you know. But we come up with all these things, all all these reasons that causes us to be puffed up and to feel superior and better than, than others among us. And again, we wouldn't dare say that to somebody. We wouldn't dare say that out loud. But the reality is, if we were pushed pretty hard, we would all admit that at some point in time, that's those feelings, those sense of pride and arrogance, and I'm better than, I'm superior to, I'm more important than. It's a temptation and a danger in, in all of our hearts. And this is why Paul writes the letter to the church, any sense of pride toward one another. Through this letter as a church to help, through the word, to help keep us and prevent us from falling into the same danger, to help keep us and prevent us from falling into the same temptation. In other words, we're, right, we're going through this book known as Romans in order to humble us and to be able to put us in a proper place in which we have a correct understanding of who we are, not only before in our relationship before the Lord, but also in our relationships to one another. And so that's what we're going to see within our passage this morning. That within this passage this morning, this obviously as Grace read this, this isn't like the feel-good message of the year. This isn't a passage you're going to read through and get all this warm fuzzies all over yourself. Instead, this is a passage that gives us a a pretty sobering picture of who we are and of who all of humanity is and who mankind is. And the reason that he gives us this picture is to humble us, not only in our relationship before the Lord, but our relationships with one another and to remove any ounce of superiority and arrogance that we might have in our relationships together in which we seek to jockey for position and seek to measure each other up to determine who's better than who and who's superior to who. That within this passage, what we're going to see are are two truths which should humble us in our relationships with with one another. So that's what we're going to see within this passage. It's two truths which should humble us in our relationships with one another. And the first truth we're going to see is this. If you have a handout, all this is on your, your handout there. But the first truth we're going to see is this. It's that God is just and impartially judges 
unrighteous sinners. That God is just and impartially judges unrighteous sinners. That's the first truth we're going to see starting in verse 1 through verse 8. In his commentary on Romans, this is what a New Testament scholar by the name of Tom Schreiner wrote about verses 1 through 8 here. He wrote the following. He said this. He said, Romans 3, 1 through 8, is one of the most difficult texts in the whole letter. On a casual reading, these verses don't appear to be particularly difficult, but naughty problems lie under the surface of the text, and the specific understanding of these verses contain a nest of difficulties. When John Piper was preaching through Romans, he preached on Romans 3, 1 through 8, on one Sunday. The next Sunday, he gave a follow-up sermon that he entitled, Why God Inspired Hard Text. When I found that out on Tuesday of this week, read what Schreiner had to say, then saw what Piper titled his message as the follow-up sermon to this, these verses that we're about to look at, I about closed my Bible and called another elder to preach this message instead. Needless to say, this, these verses here, these first eight verses, have all sorts of naughty problems and all sorts of issues and difficulties that we're about to encounter here in just a second. But my plan is, what my hope is, I'm going to kind of run through these, kind of a running commentary throughout, and then I want us to take a step back and kind of see the big picture, overarching point that Paul is seeking to make within these first eight verses here. But in order to understand these first eight verses, it's first of all imperative that we understand Paul's flow of thought and, and kind of how he ended chapter 2 and specifically verses 17 through 29 of chapter 2 that led into what he's about to get into here in chapter 3 starting in verse 1. So if you remember going back to last week at the very end of chapter 2, specifically in verses 17 through 29, Paul's point there was to show that Jews and Gentiles are equally, meaning they're both condemned before God's judgment bench. In other words, because they, they, they before God's judgment, at the very end of chapter 2, Paul then anticipates an objection that the Jews are going to raise when they, when they hear this. And the objection that they're going to raise, he, he, he puts in the form of a question here in verse 1 of chapter 3. Look there with me. The question that the Jew would ask is this. Then, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, do you see the, the train of thought there? In other words, if Jew and Gentiles are both going to be judged, if both groups are going to be equally judged and condemned at God's judgment bench, then the obvious question from the Jew is, then what benefit is there in being a Jew? Then what value or benefit is there in being circumcised? Look then at Paul's answer that he gives there in verse 2. He says, much in every way. In other words, there's a lot of advantages. There's a lot of value. And here's one of them. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The word oracles here, it's probably a reference to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. But as we get into this passage here, we're going to see probably that Paul has a more specific reference in mind when it comes to the oracles of God. And, and he's not just talking about the Old Testament scriptures, he's talking about something more specific. 
And the thing that he's talking about more, spe- what he's talking about more specifically is specifically that the covenant and the promises that God made with his chosen people, Israel, with, with the Jews. And th- this right there was the, the, was the advantage. That, that's what was the benefit of being a Jew, that they were entrusted with the promises of God. They were entrusted with the covenant and the promises that came with that covenant. None of the other nations were entrusted with that. Only the Jews were entrusted with that. Which then leads to this next question there in verse 3. He says, what if some then were unfaithful? Meaning, what if some of the Jews that were entrusted with this covenant were entrusted with this promise? What if they were unfaithful to the promise and the covenant that they were entrusted with? He asked, does their faithlessness then nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, if God condemns the Jews for their faithlessness or their unfaithfulness, then does that mean that God isn't being faithful to the promises that he made with them? In other words, does it mean that God has reneged on his promises that he made with the Jews and is therefore being unfaithful to them if he condemns them and judges them for their faithlessness? Well, here's Paul's answer in verse 4. He says, by no means. means no, that doesn't mean that God is, is being unfaithful. And, and here's, here's why. Look at the rest of verse 4. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. See what Paul's saying there? He's saying, even if everyone else in the world were a liar, even if everyone else in the world was untrustworthy and and unfaithful to the promises that they make, even if all that was true, God would still be faithful and trustworthy and true to the promises that he's made. And then, in the rest of verse 4, look what Paul does. He quotes from an Old Testament scripture passage in order to support and back up the claim that he just made about God being true and trustworthy and faithful. And look, look at the specific reference from the Old Testament that he quotes here. He says, As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Do you know where that passage comes from? One verse. That's with Bathsheba. So Paul here is quoting King David's words. And do you see what King David is, is saying here in, in Psalm 51 verse 4 there? He, he's making this claim. King David is saying, even, God, even though I'm a Jew, even though I'm, a king, I'm the king of the Jews, even though I'm the king of, the co- of your covenant people, and even though I have all the blessings that come with being a part of your covenant people, even though all of that is true, God, you're still right, and you're still just, and you're still faithful to judge me. God, you're still right, you're still just, and you're still faithful to condemn me for my unfaithfulness in my sin with Bathsheba. And so then here's the question. Do you see then why Paul quotes this particular verse at this particular point in time and how it applies to the Jews that he's writing to? 
how it applies is this. And the reason he quotes this is, is, is this reason. It's because the same God that was, that was faithful and right and just to judge King David for his unfaithfulness and for his sin, even though he was the king of the Jews and even though he was a Jew and even though he was the king of his covenant people, that that same God is faithful and right and just to condemn and judge the Jews for their unfaithfulness, even though they've been circumcised and even though they're Jews and even though they're God's covenant people and even though they possess the law. In other words, when the Jews hear this, they, they think they're exempt from God's judgment because of the privileges that they have as, as, as being the Jews. And God's showing them, I even judged your king and was right and just and faithful to do that. And so how can you then question my justice and my righteousness for judging you? And when the Jews hear that then, that God is just and that he's impartial and that he's right to judge them, they begin to just fire off all these objections. And these, as we get into these, these are like crazy, twisted, perverted, warped, unreasonable, illogical objections. But they're trying to figure out a way that they can exempt themselves from God's justice and for, for their sin. And so look at, look at some of these objections. Paul, Paul's going to raise these objections in the form of, of questions. And look at some of these objections. The first objections that, that these Jews raise is this, and you see these on your hand out there, but they're saying that God is unjust if he judges us. They're saying that God is unjust if he judges us. We see that in verse 5. Look there at verse 5. Paul says, But if our unrighteousness, so he's speaking on behalf of the Jews here who's objecting to God's judging them, but he says, If, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, meaning if, our, if God's judgment of unrighteous Jews serves to show that God is just, serves to show God's justice, and serves to show God's impartiality in judging sinners, no matter what ethnic group they belong to. He's saying, what, what shall we say then? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath? That's, that's hard to kind of, for judging unrighteous Jews. And here's why. Because if he was unrighteous for judging unrighteous Jews... Then, then how can he judge the rest of the world? In other words, if, if God didn't judge the Jews that were unrighteous, then do you know what that would say about God? It would say two things about him. It would say that he's unjust, and it would say that he's impartial. Meaning if he gives unrighteous Jews just a free pass, an exemption from being judged and condemned, it would show that he's unjust and he's impartial. He's showing favoritism to them. And if God's unjust and he's impartial, then we sure don't want God judging the rest of the world. 
He's disqualified from judging the rest of the world. We only want a just and an impartial judge to judge the world. Not an unjust, partial judge. Second objection then is this. That the Jews are raising. God should thank us, not condemn us for our sin. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That's... That's what he says in the rest of verse 7. Look, look there. But if through my lie, God's truth, or my lie, my untrustworthiness, my unfaithfulness, my unrighteousness, if through that God's truth, meaning his faithfulness, his trustworthiness to judge, abounds to his glory, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. In other words, that's kind of hard to follow there, but do you see what Paul's saying there? Or what these Jews are saying here. They're saying, God, if it wasn't for my sin, then you wouldn't be able to judge and show how impartial and just you are and thereby be glorified for it. And therefore, God, you should thank me then for my sin rather than judge me because it's because of my sin that you're able to show your justice and impartiality and be glorified for it. So you shouldn't condemn me for my sin. You should thank me for my sin. And you thought your excuses were pretty creative. No, like, that's a, that's a good one. And then they go on to say there in, in verse 8, very beginning of verse 8, if my evil, if our evil leads to good, namely the glory of God in, in displaying his justice and impartiality, then man, we better do a whole lot more evil. We better sin a whole lot more if that's the good that my, our sin results Do you see God's response there? The very end of verse 8. Paul says their condemnation is just. In other words, he hears all this craziness. <laughs> and these crazy illogical objections that they're raising. And he's like, yeah, they're definitely guilty. They're, they definitely deserve to be condemned. Their condemnation is just. So... Schreiner and Piper were right, right? Those are some difficult, challenging verses with some knotty problems all throughout those verses. But in the midst of just the complexity of those eight verses there, it's important. I don't, I don't want us to miss kind of the, the big overarching point, the big overarching picture of what Paul is communicating. Justice. And therefore they show that God is an impartial, just judge who condemns and judges, and here's the key word, all sinners who are unrighteous. His whole point is to show, like, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter if you're religious or unreligious. It doesn't matter if you're black or Hispanic or Asian or 
Indian or, or white or anything else. None of those matter and have any bearing whatsoever when it comes to God's judgment. None of it does. And so then let's, let's apply this real, real quick, right? Do, do you see then how the reality of that truth, the reality that God is impartial, that he shows no distinction based upon race, ethnicity, age, gender, any social class, anything else. Do you see how that truth then should humble us? Do you see the effect that that truth then should have on removing any ounce of pride and arrogance and superiority that we might feel in our lives? And so then think about it this way. Think about it this way for a minute. Think about just one specific area or a specific area in your life that, that fills you with pride, that, that fills you with, with pride, that, that causes you to feel like you're somebody, that makes you kind of just puff your chest out a little bit more when you think about this area in your life, makes you feel like, causes you to feel like you're somebody in something. It, it causes you to feel like you're, you're superior, you're better than others around you. Think about what that area might be. And we all got it. So don't be like looking around at everybody else and thinking, he's not talking about me. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. We all got that. We all got it. It's all something. And for most of it, it's it's more than one thing. It's a lot of things. And so for some, it might be your knowledge and your intelligence, just how smart you are. For others of you, it might be your job and your vocation. For others of you, it might be your popularity and friends and social connections. For others of you, it might have something to do with your family or something to do with your kids. And for others of you, it might have to do with ministry that you're involved in or people you're discipling, or spiritual gift you have or your Bible knowledge or whatever it is. Here's the point. You might be impressed with it. Whatever that thing is, that thing might impress you a lot and make you feel like you're, you're something. But here's the point. God's not impressed by it. Whatever that thing is, God's not impressed by it. And none of those things, whatever it is, none of those things are going to matter one iota when you appear before the judgment bench of God. None of those things will have any bearing whatsoever before the judgment bench of God. And since that's true, and since that's the case, then we don't have any reason to boast in any of those things, and none of those things should make us feel like we're better or superior to anybody else. They mean nothing before the judgment bench of God, and therefore they should mean mean nothing to us when it comes to feeling proud and superior and arrogant in terms of our relationships with others. That's the first truth then that should humble us when it comes to our relationships with others. Second truth then is this. See it on your hand out there. It's that all of humanity is unrighteous and deserving of judgment. All of humanity is unrighteous and deserving of judgment. This is what we see next there starting in verse 9. Look there with me at verse 9. Paul in verse 9, what he's doing is picking the of, of the Jews and of God, the covenant thought once again. And in verse 9, he says this. He asks this question. What then 
are we Jews any better off? And what he means by that, are, are, we, are we Jews any better off at God's judgment bench than the Gentiles are? That since we've been entrusted with the oracles of God, the covenant promises of God, are we better off then than the Gentiles when we appear before God's judgment bench? And look at Paul's answer again in verse 9. He says, no, not at all. And here's why. He says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That, that phrase there, under sin, within the context of Romans, it's almost always used in reference to slave language. Meaning that all of humanity, both Jew, both Greek, are under the authority and the dominion and the power of sin in our lives. That we all have the same master. And that master's name is sin. And since that's true then, neither group's going to be better off. Neither group has an advantage then when they appear before God's judgment bench. Instead, both groups are in the same boat. Both groups have the same master. Both groups are under the authority and the power of sin. And because of that, neither group then should feel like they're superior to or better than the other group. In verse 10 then, what Paul does is he quotes eight different Old Testament passages to prove and substantiate the point that he just made there in verse 9, that, that all are under the authority and the power of sin, meaning both Gentiles and both Jews. And, and look, at, look at how he does this in verse 10 and, and all these Old Testament passages that he quotes to, to substantiate this truth. In verse 10 he says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, as a pastor, I've made a whole lot of mistakes, and I don't need to hear like an amen, um, but one of the, the mistakes I made, I've made as a pastor was, it's probably 10, 11 years ago, I, was, I did a sermon, and my preaching text for that sermon were the verses that I just read. I got the worst looks. Um, I got the worst um, feedback um, that I've ever received. Like, why in the world are you preaching a text like that in the middle of a wedding ceremony? And I still vividly remember preaching that and looking at the bride on this glorious happy day. And I'm, this is not a joke. Literally just watching her melt right before me. This big beaming smile turned to just this. 
you know, I mean, just melted. We can talk about that later, but just thought I would, that has nothing to do with the sermon passage other than, hey, the last time I preached this passage, is there are all these Old Testament, both groups, I guess, important truths that I want us to see within this passage about the power of sin that, that humanity that we're all under. And the first truth that we see is, is this, and I've got these reversed on your hand out there, but the first truth we see is this. We see that the power of sin is comprehensive. The power of sin is comprehensive. What I mean by the word comprehensive is that it touches every part of our lives. The power of sin touches and affects every aspect and every, every ounce of our lives. Like, did you catch that all, all throughout the, the verses there? In, in verse 11, it says that, that no one understands. Under, understands, so sin corrupts our minds. Verse 12 says that all have turned aside. No one does good. So sin, sin perverts our, our wills. Verses 13 and 14 says that their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So sin corrupts our speech. Verse 15 through 17 says that their feet are, are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. So, so sin ruins, sin destroys our relationships with one another. Then in verse 18 we see that sin... It breaks our relationship. It, it destroys our relationship with God. He says there is no fear of God before their eyes. So then do you see that sin has these far-reaching effects? It affects every part of our lives, from our mind to our wills to our mouths to our relationships to our hearts, even to our relationship with the Lord. Like there's no part of our lives, there's no part of, of our bodies that sin doesn't touch, that sin doesn't affect. Like, think about that, right? Apart from Christ, every part, every aspect of our lives, every part, every aspect of our bodies is under the authority, the power, the mastery, the control, the dominion of sin. So that doesn't mean that we're, as humans, we're, we're as evil as as we possibly could be in every, every part of our lives. It doesn't mean that we can't ever do good. But it does mean that without Jesus, we're controlled, we're dominated, we're mastered by sin. That it affects, it disrupts, it distorts, it directs every aspect and every part of our body and every aspect and every part of our lives. Which then leads to the second truth we learn about the power of sin here. It's that the power of sin is universal. It's universal. And this is what we've seen all throughout Romans, right? That apart from Christ, we're all, the key word is here, it's all. We're all under the power of sin. That sin is the master of everyone. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile or young or old or Male or female or black or white or rich or poor, we're all under the power of sin. Every single person who's ever been born is under the dominion and the authority of sin. That sin is the master and the ruler of us all. And that was the point Paul was emphasizing in quoting these verses from the Old Testament, right? Did you catch the language he was using here? Verse 9, he says that all 
both Jew and Gentile, or both Jew and Greeks are under sin. In verse 10, he says, no one is righteous. No, not one. In verse 11, he says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. In verse 12, he says, all have turned aside, and that no one does good, not even one. They're trying to make a point, like, not Jew, not Gentile, nobody. Power of sin is universal. It, it, it's over like practice. No race, no gender better than the other. Instead, we're all lumped together. We're all under the power and the authority of sin. All of our mouths are corrupted. All of our minds are twisted. All of our wills are perverted. All of our relationships are distorted. And everyone's relationship with the Lord, with God, is broken. And since that's true, then what, what, what does anybody have to be proud about? What does anybody have to be arrogant about? What does anybody have to feel superior and better than someone else about? Absolutely nothing. And the reality of that then should humble us when it comes to our relationships with one another. Which then leads to this third and final truth we see here when it comes to the power of sin in our lives. Which is, and that third truth is this. is that the power of sin is insurmountable. The power of sin is insurmountable. It's not a word we use very often. In fact, I don't know if I've ever used that word in my life other than, than just, just now. But that's, that's the point that we're going to see, specifically in verses 19 and, and 20 here. It's to show how the power of sin is insurmountable, meaning, meaning the power of sin is impossible to overcome on our own. We can't overcome the power of sin on our own. That's what Paul says there in verse 19. Look there with me. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. What Paul means by that is, is he's, he's referring back to those Old Testament scriptures that he just quoted. And he's saying that, that those, those Old Testament scriptures that were just quoted, referring to the universality of, of the power of sin, He's saying that that's, those verses are speaking to those who are under the law. Those verses are speaking to the Jews. And here's why. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, what Paul's saying is that those, those verses that he quoted from the Old Testament, those verses were a reference to both Jew and Gentile, like no one, all. But Paul specifically is applying them to those who are under the law, meaning to the Jews. And the reason that he's applying them to the Jews is so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, do you see what he's saying there? The reason he's applying them to the Jews is so that the Jews will know that they're guilty just like the Gentiles. It's so that the Jews will know that they have no legal defense before the judgment bench of God. And that they're without excuse. And that they're guilty just like the Gentiles. That both groups are under the power of sin. 
And therefore, both groups are deserving of judgment. And here's the point that I want to bring all this home then to us then in this point. Is that this isn't just true of Jew and Gentile and those, those groups out there. But this is true of us in here as well. Meaning that apart from Christ, just like Jew and Gentile that Paul is addressing here, we too, and you see all this on your hand out there, that we too are guilty. Like every single one of us is included in these verses here. That every single one of us are without excuse before God for our, for our sin against Him. We, we, are, we are guilty. We all deserve judgment. And if that isn't bad enough, Secondly, not only are we guilty, secondly, none of us can justify ourselves. He says this, in his sight, before God by doing works of the law, that, that no one can appease God's wrath against them by doing works of the law, that, that no one can escape and save themselves from God's judgment by doing works of the law. Like, it, it's impossible. It can't be done. Nobody can figure out a way in and of themselves to rescue themselves, to justify themselves from God's judgment and the guilt that, that they're under. Instead, what, what Paul says here in, in the rest of verse 20, he says that the purpose of the law isn't so that we can use it to justify ourselves before God. Instead, the purpose of the law is to show us that we're guilty before God. It's to expose our sin. It's to expose our guilt before God. And here's the whole point in all this then. What all this means then is that we're stuck. Like, not only are we guilty before God and without excuse, but there's nothing we can do about it. Because it's impossible for us to justify ourselves on our own by doing works of the law. So then what do we do? Well, all of that is here to show us this last final truth we see there. Not only are we guilty, not only can we not justify ourselves, all of that is here to show us, third and finally, that we need a Savior. Like, think about that. We, we need, if we're guilty and we can't justify ourselves, then we need someone who can come and justify us for ourselves. We, we need someone who will come and rescue us from the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins. We need someone who can come and free us from the power and the authority of sin that we're under. We need somebody who can come and justify us before the judgment bench of God since we're not able to. And the good news is this, that someone has a name. And his name is Jesus. That Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. Jesus came and died the death that we deserve on the cross by substituting himself in our place and taking the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins. And in doing so, his death then, his substitutionary death then, satisfied the wrath of God against us for our sins. And his death freed us from the power of, of sin that we're under. In his death, also then through his death, his perfect righteousness was imputed to us and given to us. 
and credited to our account so that now God can justify us and declare us to be innocent and completely righteous in His sight. But here's the point in all this. All that is true only for those who turn to Jesus by faith and who trust in Jesus, who believe that Jesus and His work on the cross is their only hope for being justified and made right before the infinitely holy God of the universe. And so then if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ as your only hope for being made right before God, for being freed from the power of sin that you're under, for being rescued from the judgment of God that you deserve for your sin, if that's not what you're trusting in and placing your hope in, then I encourage you, like, do that. I plead with you, like, do that now. Like this very second, this very moment. But if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, then do you see how all of this then was written to humble us and was written to remove any hint of pride and arrogance and feelings of superiority that we might have in our and if they're Savior. Why should you feel superior to and better than anybody else? Like, we shouldn't. And as a result, then, Christians, those who follow Christ and are trusting in Christ, because of all that we've seen this morning, should be the most humble people on the face of the planet. I, I pray that would be true and in my life, and I pray then as we think about and reflect upon these truths that we've seen this morning, that it would be true in, in all of our lives, in your life, in our lives together as a church. And the result of that is that we would live together in relationships marked by humility, not by measuring people up, not by posturing, not by competition, not by trying to jockey for position, not by trying to be seen as important and superior because of the position or the title or the knowledge or just fill in the blank that you might have. But instead, we all live with a humble heart posture before the Lord, and we all live with a humble heart posture in our relationships with one another. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the relevance of truth, that deep theological truth wasn't written simply to fill our heads, but that deep theological truth that fills our heads is ultimately meant to shape our hearts. And one of the ways it's meant to shape our hearts is that it's meant to shape and inform our hearts into hearts that are humble. And I pray then that as we reflect upon just the impartial justice of God and as we reflect upon the, sin, the universal, comprehensive, insurmountable sinfulness of man, that the reality of those truths would, would knock us down to size and would cause us to walk with a limp in our relationships with one another 
and that even at this very moment that you would begin to just totally destroy and demolish those things in our life that we hold on to, that we get our significance and our ultimate identity in, and then ultimately fuel the pride and arrogance and feelings of superiority that we have in our relationships with one another. And that you would cause us to realize that none of those things whatsoever impress you, and that, that you would cause us to understand that none of those things have any bearing whatsoever when it comes to when we appear before your judgment bench. And I pray that the reality of that then, God, would help us to love, to care, to serve, and live in humility in our relationships together as a body. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? And as you do, we're going to conclude our as we do each and every Sunday by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And some people wonder, like, why are we one of those weird churches who celebrate the Lord's Supper every week? Like, that's it's new, not used to doing that. But, but one of the reasons we do that is, is just a very practical reason. And that is, is because we, we believe that the Lord's Supper is one of the ways in which the Lord keeps us humble. It's one of the ways in which the Lord can cultivate a heart posture of humility within the life of our church. And within the, we you can't deserve to come to this table, accomplish something that has made you deserving of this table. Instead, we come to this table recognizing our insignificance. We're recognizing our helplessness, our neediness, our desperateness, our, our dependence our dependence upon the Lord, that we come here in humility, recognizing that there's nothing that we bring to the table that would cause, cause God to receive us and to accept us. Instead, the only thing that would cause God to receive us and accept us and justify us is what these elements at this table symbolize and represent. That the cup is symbolic of Jesus' blood that was spilt for us on the cross. The, the, cut, the, the bread that we're going to partake of is symbolic of Jesus' body that was broken for us on the cross. And so then we approach this table as humble, needy sinners in desperate need of grace. And of, of grace that we can't provide for ourselves, but grace that Jesus has provided for us. And so then as we come here this morning, as we take a piece of bread, as we take the cup, as we make our way back to our seats and, and hold the bread and the cup in our hands, it's our acknowledgement once again of our humility and our deep and utter need for, for Christ and for Him to perform and to achieve what we can't perform and achieve in and of ourselves.